0: We need a different set of solutions. We know that this punitive path has been a grave domestic policy failure and those set of solutions should come in in the form of programs that will empower communities and not in the form of more jails or better trained police or more body cams for police.
1: Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. In Elizabeth Hinton's new book, she estimates between 1964 and 2001, there were nearly 2,000 often violent rebellions in the name of the Black Freedom Struggle. Often dismissed as riots, these rebellions have been, for the most part, written out of the history of that freedom struggle and of the civil rights era. In America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s, Hinton, an historian at Yale, focuses on what she calls the crucible period of rebellion, from the assassination of MLK in 1968 to 1972. Forged in that crucible, Hinton says, was much of what we contend with today, A turn toward punishment as the response to social problems, and police forces flooded with public money and able to ramp up the targeting and surveillance of poor communities of color. Hinton's argument places the roots of mass incarceration in the liberal 1960s. To talk about that, and about what people organizing today against police violence can learn from her work, I reached Elizabeth Hinton at her home as part of her virtual book tour. Thanks so much for being here. Congrats on the book. It's just—it's just really a treat to get to talk to you.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I'm super excited for this conversation.
1: So a lot of the book, uh, America on Fire, is set in the late 1960s into the early 70s, and it's this period of really often very violent, you know, rebellion in the name of of the Black freedom struggle. And it's your argument that that aspect of the struggle has been largely forgotten, and yet you open the book in 1960 at kind of one of the most iconic moments of the civil rights era, which is the Greensboro lunch counter sit-in. And I'm wondering what the, what the point you were trying to make was in, in, in starting the book there.
0: The 1960s opened with a completely nonviolent sit in at a Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, by North Carolina AT students at the historically Black college there. It essentially, set off the sit in movement that quickly spread across the, the Southern states. And by 1969, AT students were literally battling police officers as part of a larger movement to help high school students at a majority Black high school in Greensboro get more equal protections from school authorities. And the the kind of the response to Black demands with police, and of course, that was the response earlier in the 60s. By the end of the decade, students were now responding by throwing rocks and bottles back at police. Students were getting tear gassed by police. This spiraled quickly into this really exceptional incident of police violence and, and repression against a t students yet again at the end of the decade. So Greensboro itself and the protests at a t really capture some of these larger transitions within the black freedom struggle, but also what happens when by the end of the 1960s in the era of the war on crime, when police are increasingly the solution to socioeconomic problems and the demands of the Black Freedom Movement.
1: I mean, I, I guess it, it seems to me, I mean, this contrast between the nonviolent Greensboro sort of sit-ins in the 60s and then the, in the uh, in 1960, and then and then the more violent protests and clashes with police in the late 60s, that you're kind of making an argument about political actors throughout the decade changing what they thought was possible at a given time and, and what tactics were available to them for success at a given time, right? Exactly there's an
0: important shift that we see in terms of the, the protest tactics that are adopted, especially by young Black people within the civil rights and, and freedom struggle. And that is that, you know, especially after, I mean, we see this increasing throughout the decade, but especially after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in April 1968, there's a real transition or shift from the politics of nonviolence as being the, the kind of guiding force of the civil rights struggle to the politics of self-defense. The ANT t students saw themselves as defending themselves and protecting the high school students in Greensboro from both police violence, but from, in, in addition, complacency from authorities. And so absent changes, fundamental changes in, in living conditions for poor Black Americans, especially after decades of nonviolent protests, increasingly violent tactics seem to be the most logical response. And I think especially for the younger generations, you know, high school students, junior high school students, college students who watch the civil rights movement unfold throughout their childhoods during the 60s with such hope to come at the end to see again that so many promises had had been unfulfilled is part of the reason why rebellion actually becomes more prevalent in the years immediately following martin luther king jr's assassination
1: yeah so in some way you're saying that the turn to more violent tactics though at pretty much every point it's initiated by police violence but that turn to violent tactics is happening in part because of the 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 failures Um, of that earlier era right which is not the usual story we're told about the civil rights era
0: right and that was something that was really difficult for me to actually come to terms with with you know really trying to evaluate well what did the civil rights movement do and not do the civil rights movement opened up new that that Woolworth sit-in was successful right it opened up um, new avenues for consumption for black people it expanded educational opportunities for black students it created a black middle class but it didn't fundamentally addressed the socioeconomic inequalities in American society, namely unemployment throughout the 60s and and still today, Black unemployment um, is nearly double that of of white unemployment rates, failing public school systems that are underfunded, and housing precarity. These were, you know, the, the kind of primary issues shaping the civil rights movement, which is, which is of course, part of a larger drive for political and economic inclusion, full political to economic inclusion. And by the end of the 60s, these larger goals still hadn't been achieved. I mean, I think we often forget that the March on Washington in 63 was the March for jobs and freedom and the kind of embrace of violent tactics and in cities, you know, one thing that is important is that these incidents, as, as you said, were sparked by in violent encounters with police, but they all in every city where they occurred came after years, decades of nonviolent protests, petitions, lawsuits, et cetera, that had failed to achieve these larger,
1: these larger aims. So, so then it does feel like a, a lot of the book is concerned in a way with with how the Civil Rights era gets remembered and that we're told this very sort of narrow story that focuses on the nonviolence and, you know, Martin Luther King had a dream and Rosa Parks got tired and, and sat down on a bus. But you are really opening this up into a, a much more kind of politically awkward story in some ways, given the violence, right? I mean, not as usable in in, in that respect.
0: Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. It is, it is a story of the shortcomings of the civil rights movement, but also what we've, I think, really failed to recognize the impact of the rise of the expansion of police, of, of urban police forces and targeted low income communities of color and surveillance that's also unfolding over the decade, um, certainly in the second half of the, of the 1960s. And, and in many ways, rebellion is a response to these major shifts in domestic policy where the federal government under the banner of the war on crime begins investing in police and prison and prisons and court systems for the first time in U.S. history, following Lyndon Johnson's declaration of the war on crime in '65, and so in many ways, w- which is first, preceded,
1: of course, as your first book makes the point, it's preceded by the war on poverty, which then sort of morphs into this war on crime, right?
0: Exactly, exactly, and so that is the that is the backstory here, and so the, the structural transformation does not come in the '60s in the form of employment programs and increased educational opportunities; it comes in an employment program for police and new patrol and surveillance strategies that are intended to prevent rebellion and and the spread of political violence by militarizing police across the United States, not just in big cities. And so that's, I think, one of the really important findings of the book. You know, even going into writing, the assumption that I had in writing my first book from the war on poverty to the war on crime is, you know, the, the kind of dominant narrative that, the era of urban uprising began in Harlem in 64 and then peaked in 1967 during the long hot summer with Detroit and Newark and then there were the hundred or so rebellions that erupted after the assassination of King, um, and then it kind of fizzled out, and the, the, the archive that I was able to get access to that inspired this book shows that actually the peak years of rebellion were after the after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, after the enactment of the Safe Streets Act, which was the first kind of major piece of federal crime control policy and, and marked the official launch of the war on crime. And so in many ways, the persistence of rebellion, across you know, again, across the United States and the Rust Belt, Sun Belt, not just in the, the Northeast, in many Southern cities, including Greensboro, is in many ways a response to these new policing strategies in the absence of the structural transformation that many had hoped for at the outset of the decade.
1: So having done this work now and and, and unearthed this like sort of re- remarkable numbers of rebellions that were taking place, I mean, uh, I was struck by the fact that there were more rebellions in 1970 than there were even in 68, the year of, yep. of MLK's assassination. What have you come to understand about the relationship between the nonviolent struggle and the violent struggle; these sort of entwined forces.
0: Yeah, so that I I think that's one thing that's that's really important, and that even Martin Luther King recognized that. In the history of the Black Freedom Struggle, there's always been nonviolent and violent strains that have worked together and been critical to any success of the movement. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said "You know that the, the kind of coercive power of violence was key because of the threat it posed should the nonviolent demands of the mainstream civil rights movement under his leadership not be met. Um, and I think we also saw that the kind of power of violent protests in pushing discussions and policy forward last summer. We've had these conversations about police reform and the Black Lives Matter movement has been emerging since, well, since Trayvon Martin, but, you know, really since the killing of Michael Brown and Ferguson in 2014. But it was last summer with the kind of widespread property destruction that we saw and the violent tactics that that protesters embraced in some cities that I think have, have really pushed discussions about police reform forward that had that that turned systemic racism into a buzzword. And that also generated the kind of repression (laughs) that we're seeing. There is a pattern that follows both of these strains of of violence. But one of the things that that this period really shows is that, you know, violent tactics have been have been key and central to the black freedom struggle, and that those who embrace and this is the reason why I'm, I'm really pushing back on terminology and using Using rebellion to describe this political violence, um, we need to take the the grievances of the people who are engaging in these tactics seriously if we want to address them, address the underlying root causes in meaningful
1: ways. Right. I mean, it's very convenient to the power structure to call these riots um, and to say, oh, these are, you know, simply criminals, or or even worse, this, even worse, this is some pathology in- inherent to the black community, right? Because then you are depoliticizing these events that these are actors making structural demands in response to structural problems that, you know, we're speaking on Juneteenth, uh, go back to 1619 for heaven's sake, right?
0: Right, exactly.
1: And in labeling this form
0: of political violence as criminal, then the only solution becomes the police, which is exactly the precipitating force that people are rebelling against. And so we've been stuck in this policy cycle that when, when these incidents happen, the response on, on the part of political and economic authorities is greater police penetration, the escalation of crime control programs and calls for law and order. And you know, this is one of the big lessons of, of both of my books, that this strategy has been a failed one. And there there have been consistently, you know, opportunities where, where alternatives were presented, where a different path could have been taken. And yet, you know, the post-civil rights, urban domestic policy road has
1: been one of punitiveness. So we've talked a little bit about the Black violent rebellions, but I was also really struck in the book by how much violence against black people was happening in the sixties. And, you know, we're not just talking about law enforcement. I I think there's a section in there where you're talking about in a housing project that was being surrounded by whites at night, just shooting in with gunfire.
0: Yeah. So, so that was one of the things that was also surprising and difficult to wrestle with in writing the book, just the persistence of white mob violence in Cairo, Illinois, and in York, Pennsylvania, two cities where the relationship between the the white political establishment and white power gangs or vigilante mobs and law enforcement or police were particularly entangled and entwined led to really protracted and devastating violence. The Cairo example for me was the most kind of haunting and, and chilling. So Cairo is a small town of about 4,000 some people by the late 60s, early 70s at the southernmost tip of Illinois, literally below the Mason-Dixon line and and resembling a small southern rural town. But the Black residents in Cairo, who were just under half the population, were essentially locked out of political and economic power and job opportunities in the city. This is also a moment, too, where the face of white supremacy has shifted from the, the kind of the KKK Mob to a genteel class of white supremacists who are deeply tied to political and economic power. And, you know, throughout the 1960s, the Black residents of Cairo had demand, you know, actually John Lewis went there. There were sit ins (laughs) as part of the growing sit in movement in the early 60s to desegregate the school system and public institutions in, in Cairo and the swimming pool and the skating rink. And consistently, Authorities in Cairo you know, refused to do so and just simply closed the skating rink and this and the swimming pool down rather than actually integrate it. By the end of the decade, Black residents in Pyramid Courts, which was the segregated housing project where most of the the majority of Black residents in Cairo lived, was was essentially under siege by a white vigilante mob known as the White Hats. That was again a combination of political and economic elites, local businessmen, just dist- district attorneys police officers, and just ordinary run-of-the-mill white residents who would shoot into the housing project a couple times a month at least. And in response, and again, this is where the politics of self defense really come in because the black residents there in 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 Cairo didn 't have protection from the police department they didn't have the you know there were there was kind of like no legal resource so they started shooting back of course, the media portrayed much of the struggle in Cairo as these like violent black snipers attacking white residents, but it was the young children in the in the pyramid courts housing project who had to sleep in bathtubs at night in order to keep them to protect themselves from from the random gunshots on the part of white vigilantes and police that would come into the project. At the same time, there was also a boycott launched by a coalition of civil rights groups in in Cairo who said, we're not going to patronize these white businesses because there were no businesses in Cairo owned by Black people. We're not going to patronize white businesses so that, you know, the, the store owners can buy bullets to shoot at us. And, the, you know, this is where the, the story of Cairo was really a warning to us, because rather than actually seed political and economic power to the Black community, the establishment decided to hold on to its white supremacist power structure. And as a result, their businesses closed, the economy of the, the town completely tanked, their property values went down, anybody and anyone who could leave Cairo did, their children certainly left. And now Cairo's a majority Black city, and it's seen by many as a ghost town. Racism killed Cairo, and it affects and hurts all of us. It doesn't benefit, in the end, white people either.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you look at the violence in Cairo that Black people were subjected to, and and often in cahoots with law enforcement, I mean, that really, I think, instantiates your argument about what you call the the cycle, right, which is about how these rebellions start. And in in a pattern that I think we're familiar with up to the present day. And pretty much every case you found that it's actually police violence that begets the violent reaction. And again, that's part of the narrative that is not told so often. Right.
0: Right. Exactly. And that's, I mean, to me, that's kind of obvious, but I think the assumption is that, and again, this goes to the links between blackness, especially in criminality, that black people that especially poor young black people are the perpetrators and this, you know, reflects the the general pathological notions about Black people, poverty, and crime. But the actual history of rebellions, the way that they unfold, show that forms of police violence are, are what touch them off. And the, the kind of lesson is that, that this, as you said, begets community violence. But it's, of course, tied to all of these other socioeconomic realities and systemic racism. I mean, police themselves are the kind of most tangible expression of systemic racism, which is why incidents of police violence end up setting off this political violence that is, of course, tied to a much larger set of, of grievances.
1: Right. I mean, I don't know if you said explicitly, explicitly in the book, but it it's, feels like Maybe you're saying the, the police violence is the sort of short term trigger to these sort of long term underlying causes, right? Exactly. Exactly. In part because police,
0: um, again, you know, during during this critical period where social welfare programs are being disinvested from beginning as early as as nineteen Are being defunded, I guess you could yeah, say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are being defunded and police programs are being funded police become the frontline representatives of the state in targeted low-income communities of color. I mean, especially when by the late 1960s, police officers are assuming many of the functions of the previous war on poverty programs where social workers were once, you know, providing after-school programs for kids in Detroit and in York, Pennsylvania. Now police officers are offering recreational programs after school. And so if police... Who are who are not there to serve and protect you, but are there? You know, their purpose is in low-income communities of color is to find criminals and potential criminals, arrest them, and then remove them from the community. Um, that sets up an antagonistic relationship, not only between residents and officers, but between residents and and state institutions in general.
1: Yeah, I mean, this seems like an important part of the context of the book and and why you you argue, you know, in your first book that, you know, the, the roots of mass incarceration, are it's it's not so much Reagan in the 80s and the war on drugs, it's, it's LBJ and the war on poverty in the 1960s, is that as the war on poverty morphs into the war on crime, law enforcement is just f- literally flooded with just a <laughs> huge amount of federal money and uh, right. resources. Um, and then you've got the effect of vietnam as well and that kind of uh hardware uh showing up and and that is also precipitating a lot of this violence right and the constant surveillance from police
0: right and that's why the fact that you know the peak of rebellion occurs following the enactment of the safe streets act is so important when these when these new federal grants again, and that's in
1: 68 right the that's safe in
0: 68 johnson signs signs legislation law in june 1968 you know, in addition to requiring states to make crime control a priority and also incentivizing or or, uh, shaping priorities at the state and local level by saying, you know, if if federal grants are coming in the form of crime control at a rate that's far outpacing community action um, and economic opportunity, then states are going to start to change their, their own policies to get that new federal money. And so this is also why we begin to see rebellion spreading out into smaller communities like York and like Carroll, because the early recipients of these new federal crime control programs tended to be larger cities. One of the things that I'm really proud of in the book is a 25-page timeline of Black rebellions that you make reference to that includes, you know, basically a list of the, you know, over 2,000 cities where rebellion occurred between 64 and, and 72. But we really see that the location of rebellion, and again, the frequency and scale begins to really escalate following the enactment of this legislation in in June. And it's because these federal grants are beginning to reach these smaller departments. And when these strategies are are being used in segregated, low-income Black communities, residents are responding in the same way to these new policing strategies as their counterparts in Watts and Detroit and Newark had.
1: Yeah, it's very powerful at the end of the book as you just page through page after page after page of these rebellions. So uh, also in 68, you have uh, the Kerner Commission, right. um, which is this you know, commission convened by Johnson to look into the causes of the of the quote unquote riots and, and and what's to be done about them. And it comes back with a response, which I don't think anybody expected, least of all uh, Johnson, who pretty much disavowed it, uh, which was, you know, the, the real problem here is. You know, white racism and and you know a impending system of uh, urban apartheid. And I think the commission calls for a kind of Marshall Plan for cities. Yep. It doesn't get everything right. I, I think it's still pretty wedded to a, a, a policing and enforcement m- model. But uh, do you have a sense of how it how it did get so much right? And and is that maybe an indication for you of a, a different path the '60s could have taken? And with the '60s, the rest of us.
0: Yeah, I mean the the coroner commission is a is a real missed opportunity because it basically recognized that if the federal government was serious about addressing the root causes of the violence and fostering racial equality, you know, really addressing racial discrimination in a meaningful way, which was something that Johnson administration had pledged to do, then, you know, a major structural transformation was needed that went beyond the war on poverty. I mean, I think this is another kind of myth about the 60s is that, you know, the war on poverty was this like, majorly huge program and was was rooted in structural reform. And, you know, the, the war on poverty was, you know, did not go far enough to address inequality in part because of the assumptions about black pathology that steered the development of the War on Poverty program. So instead, you know, the idea was that the root cause of Black poverty was Black behavior, Black pathology influenced by people like Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And by, you know, the end of the 60s, the end of the Johnson administration, the Kerner Commission recognized that that this hadn't worked, that the federal government needed to go further and needed to invest resources in communities, needed to support a major job creation program which i think would have completely changed the kind of racial stratification and inequalities that we see in the us today a job creation program by mobilizing the public and private sector and completely you know beyond remedial education putting the resources into urban public schools to bring them up to par with suburban schools you know you you have to wonder where the us would be today had that structural transformation come to bear uh, the, the recommendations of the Kerner Commission that did end up getting implemented were the ones that reinforced uh, another one of Johnson's task forces, which was much more proved to be much more influential, but that we don't talk about, which is the Crime Commission, which worked for years to essentially develop a blueprint for the modernization of American law enforcement that became the Safe Streets Act. And even, that, you know, when the Kerner Commission emphasized things like things that we're talking about today in terms of police reform, you know, they said, Maybe we don't need to have police with with guns respond to every call. Maybe we, you know, maybe we need to bring in social workers and really critiquing some of the heavy handed tactics that were increasingly b- being embraced. Those aspects, those softer forms of the Kerner Commission's recommendations, were rejected. But where they, in the moments where they called for more patrol and surveillance in low income communities, echoing the recommendations of the Crime Commission. Those were embraced. And of course, I think it's it's important to note that you know, you can't separate the Kerner Commission's policing recommendations again from the larger structural interventions it was calling for along alongside them.
1: So if we want to turn to the present day because I don't think you wrote this book just to tell a certain history. you also wrote this book, I think, with an eye on the present and about the importance of resistance and and of organizing. I mean I take it you were putting the finishing touches on this book in the midst of, you know, what was possibly the largest protest movement in US history, you know, in response to the murder of black people by police. I mean is there one thing you would hope that a present day organizer could take from your book?
0: Well, one, you know, understanding the the kind of larger history of these protests that they didn't start with Michael Brown or or with George Floyd that it has a as much longer history than that it's an outgrowth of, of sets of decisions made by, by policymakers, I think, is really important. And in recognizing that history, and this is an outgrowth of, of a set of decisions, then we can think about how those decisions might be undone. But I think if we want to get out of this cycle, then, and this is why the Kerner Commission's recommendations are so important, then we have to look beyond the police. And I think this is what defund is really about. It's saying that, you know, we need a different set of solutions We know that this punitive path has been a grave domestic policy failure. And those set of solutions should come in in the form of programs that will empower communities and that will invest resources into communities and not in the form of more jails or better trained police or more body cams for police, but in the form of robust educational programs, college scholarships, uh, early childhood education programs, job creation programs. For vulnerable youth, um, just an entirely different set of policies. And that's that is the only winning solution.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the punitive focus, which is always the response to everything, whether it's the violent rebellions in the period you were writing about or more present day ones or right now with the spike in gun violence that's taking place across the country. The answer is always more punishment, more police, even though, as you say, I mean, that's just a, it's a very documented policy failure. I mean, what's happening right now is a kind of condemnation of the status quo, and yet we just get the same answer again and again. I mean, it almost feels like whether it succeeds or not is is not even the point for those people preaching it.
0: Yep, exactly. This harkens back to, again, that resistance on the part of the Johnson administration and others to really investing the resources and enacting the policies that will fundamentally disrupt the racial hierarchies that have defined this country historically. I mean, I also go back as critical as I am about some of the aspects of the great society. I mean, I think some of the, the, the promising policy solutions we can also find in the war on poverty. The community action programs that really only functioned as a kind of direct channel from the federal government to autonomous grassroots programs from 1964 to 1965, under the principle of maximum feasible participation, I think is a policy precedent worth returning to. So like the federal government granted police departments, you know, tens of millions of dollars to expand their forces and for new technologies, the federal government in that first year of the war on poverty also granted local organizations millions of dollars directly to address the needs of their communities the idea steering the early war on poverty programs was that that poor people community members have a much better sense of how to address the problem of poverty than a group of outsiders and increasingly as as local officials and others resented the ceding of power to the people uh, these community action programs increasingly came under administrative, local administrative, municipal oversight, and then law enforcement uh, participation. And so I think that principle, though, is what we need to we need today. I think the federal government does have a role here, just as they did in fashioning the, the kind of mass incarceration society that, that we currently live in. And, and the first step is, is funding community groups who are providing, I think, the most promising and innovative approaches to public safety you know one of the one of the big tasks before us is redefining public safety and and what kind of programs public safety could mean and should and and should mean it's community groups who are either self-funded or funded by whatever grants they can get their hands on are helping and assisting crime survivors they're conducting harm reduction and and, and violence intervention programs with people who are susceptible to gun violence and they're proving to have really uh, significant results. And again, these are approaches to public safety that go beyond the police. And so I think that is the future that should be the future. And, you know, in order for it to really work, there's an important role for public funds and particularly the federal government to play.
1: Yeah, I mean, when we talk about the role of the of of the federal government, have you been heartened at all by some of what Biden has been doing or at least saying, I mean, when it comes to, you know, racial justice and racial equity and addressing the economy uh, structurally and, and inequality. I mean, it has it's been a more notable shift than I think people were anticipating.
0: Yes. Yeah, definitely more than I anticipated. And, you know, we haven't heard a president address the problem or recognize the problem of racial discrimination since Kennedy and, you know, also Johnson. I tell, I often tell my students, you know, that Richard Nixon was our is our last liberal president. Was our most liberal president, right? And now, um, you know, of course, it remains to be seen. But at least it seems like now we're back to more of a Johnson model and and back to a an administration that wants to address racial inequality. And of course, the I mean, the representation and then the Biden administration is wonderful to see. But then the question is again, you know, whether we're going to be stuck in this reform trap with a lot of good rhetoric. I mean, the response so far to police violence have has been pattern or practice investigations by the Department of Justice, which is, you know, has been since the 1994 crime bill, kind of the only federal check on systemic racism within police departments, but also police violence. And, and the, the Justice Department announced two investigations following the conviction of Derek Chauvin, In April, one in Minneapolis and one in Louisville, where Brianna Taylor was killed by a plainclothes police force um, a couple months before George Floyd was. And these investigations often end up costing local police departments hundreds of millions of dollars to implement reforms. And as I show in the book, in my chapter on Cincinnati, where, you know, a pattern of practice investigation unfolded for eight years and is considered one of the most successful ones, they don't necessarily effectively prevent more police killings in in the future they don't necessarily lead to long-term shifts within the culture of police departments so I'm still looking for and hoping for again a different set of investments and a complete transformation of police and end of policing as we know it I'm I'm really encouraged by some of the developments that are happening in places like Ithaca New York where the city council and the police union this is huge remarkable yeah voted to abolish the police department and replace it with the department of uh, community solutions and public safety and actually embracing some of the, the the more radical suggestions that had been suggested by the kerner commission not to have an, a uniformed officer with a gun respond to every call to bring in mental health professionals and social workers to address public safety problems and to give civilians oversight and empower communities and so i think these are the kinds of models that Hopefully, as you know, we see success in Ithaca, which I'm confident that we will, will be implemented nationally under the leadership of the federal government. Again, the federal government helped get us into this mess. So I hope under the Biden administration's leadership, despite the fact that Biden (laughs) helped, you know, in many ways is responsible for getting us into this mess by, you know, shepherding the legislation of the war on drugs through the, the Senate in the eighties. And then of course, you know, being the author of the Senate version of the crime bill in 1974 which led to the skyrocketing of American prison systems. I'm confident that or hopeful that he will bring about this new regime and this different policy approach that is so necessary in our current moment.
1: Well, I hope so too. Elizabeth, I just wanna thank you so much for such a rich conversation. Congratulations on the book, on, on both you. books, which I really think are kind of a, a tandem project. And it's just it's been great as well to see all of the deserved uh, attention that they're getting. So thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. I have loved this conversation. That was Yale historian Elizabeth Hinton. Her new book is America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and Black rebellion since the 1960s. Not long after we recorded that conversation, President Biden announced a new strategy to combat gun violence. Notably, it frees up a large pool of federal funds for local jurisdictions to both hire more police officers and to invest in community-based anti-violence work. In an email, Elizabeth noted, Although part of Biden's gun violence policy encourages state and local governments to use COVID Rescue Plan funds to hire more police, much of the substance of the plan urges that hundreds of billions of dollars be spent on community-based violence intervention programs i'm very cautiously optimistic that the plan represents a step toward a promising new public safety paradigm for more information about today's show and about elizabeth hinton visit courtinnovation.org new thinking today's episode was edited and produced by me Sami Hamiya, is our director of design Emma Dayton is our VP of Outreach. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening.